Welcome, Welcome to, to Podities. You're home for strange stories, odd events, weird history, bizarre tales, unique places, and different perspectives. That's Meg. And that's Cal. And it is 20 days until Halloween. 20 days. Less than three weeks. Yes, less than three stole, weeks. <laughs> stole it from you. <laughs> Meg just realized that recently. I did. Well, you know, mom brain. Yeah. Well, we record a day early, too, so yeah. we keep that in mind. I have done nothing worthy of celebrating Halloween recently. I haven't really. I've gone into a couple of Halloween stores. Yeah. Peruse the Halloween sections at Target and uh, Barnes and Noble. And the Eek and Hyde one at Target is a little disappointing this year. Have you seen? Yeah, it really is. But I think Michaels and Joanne are also disappointing. It seems to be they're redoing a lot of the same decor. It's not a good year for Halloween decorations. No, it's not. Which, more money for books. That's true. <laughs> Positive outlook. Yeah. So last week we talked about our favorite costumes. This week we're going to talk about our favorite classic and non-classic horror movies. Yeah. Spooky movies. Kind of a short pitch to each other to see what our favorites are. We usually mm-hmm. have a whole month where we watch something every night, a show or a movie, um, but it's hard to it to really commit to that. So I'm lucky these days if I get in, like, I don't know, maybe 10 movies total. Mm-hmm. So I think we might have the same favorite classic, but I'm not sure. What is yours? Uh, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, shit. I wasn't expecting that. That's a good answer, though. <laughs> well, if we're talking, if you if you would have asked which classic killer, I don't normally consider Hannibal Lecter in that same grouping for some reason. Now that I'm realizing it, I consider Scream, yeah. Freddy, Mike, yeah. all them. Yeah, so then my answer would have been Mike Myers and Halloween. That would have been my favorite. But I love Anthony Hopkins, and he does bad. So good. He does. I love him. Well, I was going to say Halloween because I oh, yeah. have a special spark, special spot in my heart for those slasher movies. Yeah. They're my favorite. Yeah, like I said, Halloween is my favorite out of all of those. I think it's the best. So, non classic. Non classic. What would yours be? This is so difficult because there's so... Okay, so we said horror, so I can't say Nightmare Before Christmas. Nope. Or Beetlejuice. No. Um. Spooky. Spooky. God. Do you have one? Because I still, I'm still struggling. Yes. Mine would have to be The Devil's Rejects. It's a Rob Zombie movie. It's Mm. the sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, I couldn't do those. Oh my gosh. So classic? Uh. See, my brain is, like, dividing it into, like, psychological thriller, like, edgier, sweet, like, mastermind. Like, dark comics, right? Yeah, because, I mean, Hellboy. I mean, it's not, to some, it's not really horror. The graphic novels are a lot darker than the movies have been. The remake of the Hellboy, or not not really a remake, was darker than the original, the the Ron Mm -hmm. Perlman version. Um, But, you know, I... Would be a mess if I didn't say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a way because of everything they incorporate with uh, Ed Gein and mm-hmm. Leatherface and there being kind of a true aspect to some of it, although very little. Yeah, that's true. And then Psycho, because mm-hmm. I mean it's that it's just such a classic. 
House on Haunted Hill. Sorry, I could really go <laughs> on. Like, there are just so many good that it's really hard to pin. No, I respect that. Well, so on the topic of spooky, we're going to be talking about dead bodies. Yeah, we are. I think we had mentioned it at one point. Um, today's trifecta, we still haven't come up for a name for that system of mm, overlapping topics, that. does it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we are going to go from Leonardo da Vinci to the body trade, body snatchers, and then a very specific case, which is oddly one of my favorite history stories to tell. Sweet. Yeah. You want to take it away? No? Me? Hmm. Yeah, I have us both down for the intro. Hmm, this is take two. Okay. He will go down in history as the man who opened a door. When I say the name Leonardo da Vinci, what do you think of? Ever after. Perfect, because you recognize the quote. Well, crap. I mean, you had a manuscript, but would you have recognized the quote without it? You didn't realize. No, I didn't. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, that's the quote that they talk about him when he takes the door off by using the hinges. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So if you recognize that, uh, you're familiar with the painting, Hat of a Woman, which is the painting that they use in the movie when they tell the story of Drew Barrymore's character. Uh, I didn't know it was an unknown person. I thought that was, once I knew that, I thought that was a really interesting way for them to have kind of crafted that tale of the movie, and it makes me love it just that much more. So that particular painting, Head of a Woman, was from 1508. Uh, Arguably the most well-known would be the Mona Lisa from 1503. And then a lot of people know the Last Supper. That's what they associate with them. And also the Vitruvian Man. There's a Hellboy version that's really freaking awesome just for what it's worth. So these artworks demonstrate da Vinci's incredible talent and skill. But what if I told you that he was just as skilled at other forms of art? And what if I told you that he was one of the most talented dissectors we've ever seen? I never would have believed that. Never would have? Yeah. That's crazy. So he was born out of wedlock. Leonardo lived with his father until he was sent to live at a painter's guild in Florence called the Santa Maria Nueva, a hospital organization that also included physicians and apothecaries. He was the quintessential Renaissance man, and knowing this ahead of time was what made me not surprised when I found out that he dissected the bodies, because he's written about being one of the most curious people to have ever existed. Mm. So over the course of his career, he worked on a broad range of product products, mm, close, projects, like overseeing the development of a really complicated canal system in Milan, um, weapons and other contraptions that he invented, although he didn't get official credit for it. He was known to have invented the parachute, armored cars, scuba gear, even a giant crossbow, and my favorite, a a three-barrel cannon. Huh. That I don't know why you would need that. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy. And the from ever after, I always associated him with the 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 the, the, the wood shoe things where he could walk on water. 
So in this same career, what he did was he filled manuscripts with thousands of pictures, illustrations, and notes, and a lot of those are now kept at the the Royal Library at Windsor Castle, and these sketchbooks chronicle his life of relentless curiosity and inquisitiveness. He was known to have seen the passing of a hundred-year-old man at that hospital in Florence, and other than being old, he was in perfect health. So Leonardo went to make an anatomy of him to study him and find out what ended his life because he couldn't tell from the outside. So um, over the course of his studies, he claims that overall he dissected and studied about 30 corpses. He was known to have produced the first accurate illustration of the spine as well as cirrhosis of the liver Long before we knew the innermost workings of the heart, he recognized it as a four-chambered vessel instead of the common belief at the time was that there were two, and hardly anybody wow. was dissecting bodies at this time. So it was guesswork, and yeah. he was correct, and it's astonishing to me. He was also um, known to have um, accurately drawn a fetus in the womb, which, Dang. yeah, it, crazy. He also believed that in fertilization of an embryo, the mother's egg was as influential as the father's sperm, which is unheard of. Yeah. And along these thoughts, he made the first accurate portrayal oh, of the developmental reproduction of a five-month-old. I got a little excited and had in my notes. <laughs> so it's really important to understand the conditions in which Leonardo worked yeah. and studied. Decomposition begins as early as four minutes after death which is crazy. Pallor mortis, stiffness of death, causes muscle contraction three to six hours later. Within three days, your internal organs have begun to decompose. Sulfur, which is found within the um, bacteria's release, produces gases that lead to bloating. And you can get up to twice your size from yeah, bloating. Everything is breaking down and producing gases. And it leads to discoloration of the skin. This same bacteria causes putrefaction, a most unpleasant odor accompanying the bloating. So he's working on these very bloated, very smelly corpses. Because he would essentially take whatever he could find regardless yeah. of what time of year he's dedicated. it was. Yeah. yeah. There were no modern amenities to be found in his time. No indoor lighting, running water for washing your hands formaldehyde, other embalming chemicals to slow the decomposition. Unless it was winter, there was no preservation. There was no way to take care of anything. Yeah, we didn't have giant walk-in freezers. Yeah. Da Vinci worked at night by candlelight, working methodically to understand the bodies before him. When the body became too decomposed to dissect or the smell became overwhelming, he was known to resort to surface dissection, which is peeling back layers of skin to study the blood vessels. This type of anatomy, called flap anatomy used cutouts such as those on arms and legs to show the layers of human tissue. It's actually... It, it's really cool. Incredibly resourceful. Yeah. Really smart and practical, although to them it was probably more about saving money than yeah. about what they actually learned from it. But you can actually see if you collect these types of books or read the articles online, you can see doctors doing the flap anatomies and looking at everything underneath and just... I don't know, I'm sorry, it's just the, the idea that they thought to do this, because you can see people looking at it and the wonder in their eyes at dissecting people, and it's, it has such a bad rap right now, but I 
you, I don't know, you find somebody that gets excited about something they really like, and mm-hmm. there are people like Leonardo doing this, and I just love that people get excited about things. I don't know, it's just, I really do. No, I totally get it. So it wasn't until the late 13th and early 14th century that laws were passed making the dissection of bodies legal. Prior to this, it was sacrilege. Mm -hmm. So not only was it illegal, although laws were hardly enforced, it could be expensive to pay for them. That's where grave robbers came in. These same procurers were known to have worked for da Vinci, in a way helping to make these grand discoveries and advances possible, even if we didn't know about them until more than two centuries after his death. Yeah, his notebooks are full of... You can view a lot of them online. I've seen a lot of his artwork in them. When I went to check out Da Vinci um, biographies to study for the episode, the top comment on it was from Bill Gates. Whoa. And he's talked about how... It, you can go and read it. It was a great review of the book. But he, him and Melinda were just dating at the time. That Right, Melinda? Okay, they were dating at the time and he let her know that he had bid on a notebook um, and she told him, what do you need another computer for? And he's like, no, this is a different kind of notebook. And it was one of Da Vinci's notebooks. Wow. And I got goosebumps reading it because he was talking about how exciting it was to have looked up to Da Vinci and everything. Mm -hmm. And it was, I don't know, I've never seen a famous person review a book like that before. That's awesome. So, before we can discuss the body trade and understand its significance, we should take a step back and look at how, at different times in history, and different people, and how they viewed dissection and anatomical study. As early as 200 BCE, before the Common Era, we have records of physicians undertaking systematic dissection of corpses. In the Middle Ages, which was heavily embroiled with Christianity, we saw dissection as blasphemous. At this point in time, fear of dissection can be directly linked to the tutor's treatment of criminals. Practices such as being hung and being drawn and quartered denied the person the chance for redemption and entrance into the afterlife. It wasn't until the Renaissance, which we see from 1300 to 1600, which brought with it a change in the attitude and outlook on this whole entire situation. There was an interest in education, especially art, science, and literature skyrocketed as people began to read and write, and the printing press allowed for the production and distribution of text. For the first time, it was possible to examine and critique the church, its practices, and even its Bible. At this same time in Europe, Italy, and France, to be more specific, there's a plethora of medical texts and printed anatomy books now widely available. The demand for bodies was astounding, and while there were laws and legislature passed, they were few and far between and most often ignored or dismissed. Yeah. And then from 1541 until the 1700s, there were only two groups of professional workers that were permitted to carry out dissections, the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal Company of Barber Surgeons. Together, they received an annual quota of four cadavers, which later increased to six, which to me seems like nothing. It increased to ten at some point, too, but still, I mean... At the time. That's such a small increase, it could hardly sate the demand. So not only was this act the first allowance for the dissection, but it was also responsible for the beginning of what we call the poor tax, 
the degrading perception and practice of dissecting only the people at the bottom of society's rungs. Yeah, it's it's tough to watch and listen, but I think it's an important thing that we need to be aware of in history. Mm-hmm. So when the Murder Act of 1752 was passed, it continued to grant medical schools access to executed murderers' corpses with a dual purpose of doubling as a threat to discourage murder as well as disruptive crimes like dueling, which I just... I'm sorry, I love that. That's just that dueling is just a thing that's considered <laughs> disruptive. It's laughable today. And I can't help but imagine, like, that cock card. What is it? Sharpening your foam wet sword on your foam. Do you what? remember what that no. card is? It's no, one of no. the geek cards. It's um, It references cosplay costumes and using a foam sword on a foam whetstone to sharpen oh it. That's all I could think of. I got off track really bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to dueling. So the removal of the bodies to the medical colleges prevented families yet again from being able to freely practice their religions and superstitions about death and the afterlife. These bodies were put on display in anatomical theaters and dissected in front of sold-out crowds consisting of medical professionals, students, passerbys, and anyone else who was interested. But the supply was not enough to satiate the growing interest in anatomy and advancement of medical education and training. And in 1832, we see the passing of the Anatomy Act, which essentially was the last straw for the poor and indigent. This law made dissection a punishment for poverty, originally intended to thwart body snatchers by providing a legal means of increased access to cadavers. What it did was create a fear of workhouses and hospitals, for if a person died while at the hospital, it was easy for a physician to perform a post-mortem and take it just a bit too far to learn more, while bodies of paupers and lunatics at a poorhouse with no family to afford to claim the body could be purchased for use at the medical college. We have reached a point of no return where the fear of dissection and death was not just for criminals. It was more of an everyday worry. It had already been something kind of creeping up, and I think in people's radar. And, yeah, it's really sad to read about people having a fear of workhouses because of it. That's how terrifying this was. I think it's hard to comprehend today. I can't come up with anything comparable Mm -hmm. because we've come so far with body and organ donation. So, but at this specific point in time that we were talking about what you mentioned with the Anatomy Act, this is the heyday, the peak of body snatching from the 1820s to the 1830s. These people were also called resurrectionists, body snatchers, sometimes sack em up men. But essentially, it all boiled down to them being people who illegally procured corpses and sold them to medical professionals, colleges, and professors. Because public and private medical institutions were known to have purchased them. Mm. So it wasn't just, you know, those associated right. with the state. But most body snatching occurred during the cooler months. We kind of touched base on this a little earlier, which was approximately November until March. And then still there was only a 10-day window in which a resurrectionist had to dig up the body, sell it to a medical college before decomposition made the corpse of no use and get their money. If the person was experienced and efficient and the conditions cooperated, they could have a grave dug out and be on their way with the body within an hour. That is crazy. Incredibly efficient. 
you can't dig a grave that fast. Yeah, wow. Like the Snatchers, medical professors ran their terms roughly from October to May, partly because this was also when it was cold and the bodies wouldn't decompose as fast, and also because that's the season when the bodies were available right. to bring to these institutions. So it's during that time that we can find records denoting how many bodies or pieces of bodies were required for each student, and it's said to be one to three bodies, perhaps whole, probably not, as that's the average. Pieces of pieces. bodies. Pieces. Well, because if the whole body's not... Be I'm just picturing, All right, man, if, like, a really if, old Diagon Alley for the people <laughs> doing this, like, and at this store... Get your pieces of bodies. Like <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to kind of dim down the topic, and then I realized that I don't need to. So basically, if a body was too decomposed to be able to be used, there might be a section of the body that could still be used. Like if maybe the arm is okay, so you could sever right, the arm yeah. and then do a flap anatomy of the arm and study the sections of tissue and skin and bone and everything. So that's how some would learn. Some people might never have had had access to an entire corpse they just did like a torso and like a left foot and a right a arm yeah a butt <laughs> i had to uh, so anyone could be a resurrectionist you could be a resurrectionist if the idea of easy money enticed you enough but it was normally a side job, so you wouldn't just be a resurrectionist full-time. Mm -hmm. It was, you could be a barista full-time or a teacher full-time and then a resurrectionist part-time. Part-time, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but in that day, it common, um, common jobs were school teachers and apothecaries were mm -hmm. usually who we saw. Many body snatchers were working men who saw their second job as a trade, and they were simply supplying what was in demand. Ugh. Groups of resurrection men could work together to case a church by asking around town, specifically in pubs, about recent deaths. They could also keep an eye out for funeral possessions, processions, which would pretty much lead them to their next job. That doesn't really sound And that's, that's really all it took. Women weren't completely left out because this was mostly a thing for men at the time. But stooges, who were often women, were sent into workhouses and poorhouses to act as a grieving family member and select a body that no one had already come to claim and then lay a false claim that they were related Dang. And claim the body. And because these places were overpopulated and underfunded, those who passed at the institutions were seen as a burden. And besides, I doubt anyone would look twice at a grieving mother or widow, sister, claiming a body. Yeah. It's a I sales tactic. That anybody would lie about No. That. So population at this time was exploding. Everything and everywhere was crowded. Streets, rooms for board, and even churchyards. So much so that many of the church-affiliated graveyards were overflowing. Yeah. Literally. In some instances, bodies were rotated, bodies were stacked, and cemeteries ran out of land. The commonality of body snatching was such a worry that these churches, overflowing with bodies, were now responsible for shelling out money to erect railings and fences around the perimeter of the property. It was expensive, too, with no one to fund. I mean, boohoo, don't really feel bad for the church, but it was right. a huge expenditure that we saw all across because this wasn't just a mm -hmm. one-town issue. Right. 
and obviously these fences didn't stop or deter thieves, but to not have tried would have been to publicly surrender to the body-snatching epidemic, something the church would never have done. It was science versus the church, and the wedge was only driven deeper when, instead of encouraging students to see the wonder of the human body in the process of dissection, the general path the medical students took was one of atheism. I can understand that. To me, that's not unsurprising. There were several methods employed to protect the dead in their graves during this era of grave robbing. Coffins started to become more expensive and heavier to prevent body theft. Heavy wood, multiple layers of lead lining of coffins were two specific practices adopted to thwart grave robbers. During the peak of coffin security, coffin security, <laughs> was the <laughs> no, it's not two words you expected to see next right. to each other. During the peak of the coffin security was the invention of a patent metal coffin specifically designed with theft in mind. This coffin was made of raw iron and cannot be rested apart. That must have been heavy. It, I cannot even imagine. Oh my gosh. If the grieving family was well off, they might go as far as building a vault or mausoleum to house their relative's body. They might also hire a guard to protect or patrol the resting place, be it a mausoleum or a dead house. Dead houses were pretty much exactly what they sound like. These houses existed to store bodies from after death until a significant time had passed, such that the body had undergone such decomposition that it made it useless to robbers and physicians. Yeah, that 10-day window. For the poor, the most likely and affordable action was to work together with their community or neighborhood and take shifts helping each other's family protect the churchyard. It's a really sad thing to bring the neighborhood together. Yeah. It's, maybe it's it's its own original like neighborhood watch. Yeah, true. The mort safe was developed in Scotland and consisted of a grid of metal, which encasing the coffin and was cemented into the ground. From the top, they looked like creepy tombstone cages. They do, yeah, because the wrought iron... Yeah. It, it just evokes a very gothic... Definitely a accent we can post on Instagram. Yeah, you can see if you're interested in tombstones or um, mort safes or anything like that. They're actually really interesting to look at. Knowing the history, it's a little sad, but a yeah. lot of history is sad. Yeah. So unfortunately, many of these methods were expensive and therefore only available to the most well-to-do in society. The poor and vulnerable in society continued to be the most targeted. It was so common, actually, that some of these communities have their own stories and folklore from these terrifying years. In the African-American community, stories were told of night doctors, which was doctors who preyed on vulnerable victims to kidnap and murder them to further their studies. However, if the needs of the colleges were met and the professors had fresh bodies to work with, society society tended to just look the other way. Ten-day window. Okay, so you walked us over how quickly we begin to decompose. Yes. Within minutes. Yep. Last time that it takes for your barista to brew your daily coffee yeah, is true. how long it takes for your body to start decomposing. So take, take a second to really think 10-day window was how much they were willing to put up with in terms of the corpse's quality, I guess, is how I want to say it. Because they were that desperate. Mm. No, thank you. So, 
this is one of my favorite historical stories to tell. And it has to do with two men, two body snatchers named William Burke and William Hare. In December of 1827, an elderly man died in it. I'm not laughing at that. <laughs> okay, get it out. <laughs> okay, that's not funny. In December of 1827, an elderly man died in his sleep while still owing rent money. At the time, they worked together at a little like B&B that they owned. They mm-hmm. rented out rooms to people in town, and it specifically kind of catered to people visiting, people who didn't have permanent connections. It was often people that was coming from out of town, people who were traveling without a companion because they were a widow. Like an Airbnb. Yeah, actually. Yeah, actually. So, although you would not read this on their website because <laughs> the guy died while at their establishment and he owed the money for rent. So, to recover the money, Burke and Hare sold his body to a professor at Edinburgh University for seven and a half pounds, which today equals out to $787. Dang. So, probably enough to pay... A month of rent. That's least, a really yeah. sad way to look at the value of the human body. But yeah. it seems it seems like a lot of money today. But think about how much money that was back in 1827. Yeah. It's So anyway, it's obvious that Burke and Hare were fans of this work and the quick money that it produced because they went on to murder at least 16 people in total. And they continued to sell the bodies to a Professor Knox, who was the anatomy teacher. And this type of murder became well-known and is actually still referred to as burking when a person plies a victim with alcohol and then smothers them to death. The greed that Burke and Hare exhibited eventually caught up with them and they became careless. They went as far as murdering a children's entertainer who had unique and really noticeable physical deformities and they delivered him to Knox. Didn't take long before they were caught, and with little physical evidence to assist their investigation, the police offered Hare immunity in exchange for testifying against his partner in crime, William Burke. After being convicted of the murder of three people, Burke was sentenced to death, and on January 28, 1827, Burke was hanged in front of a crowd of approximately 25,000 onlookers. Wow. Shortly thereafter, his body was brought to an anatomical dissection feeder, and Burke was treated to the same procedure that befell all of his victims. You can find Burke's skeleton, as well as his death mask, along with Hare's life mask, in Edinburgh. The aftermath of these crimes, combined with a strike of London Burkers, it was a rogue group of impersonators who Mm. committed burking to victims, um... In London, and that helped lead to the establishment of the Anatomy Act of 1832. And so, real quick, um, because we mentioned death masks and life masks without going into it too much, the masks are an impression from the person. Um, If it happened while they were alive, it was a life mask, and you would take a likeness, a mold using some kind of plaster, clay, something like that. And if the likeness was taken after death, it was called a death mask. Mm. And then it was taken direct imprint from the corpse and it was used to remember them. And they used it also to identify um, bodies. They would take masks of them to display in windows Mm. to see if people would recognize them. 
So that Anatomy Act of 1832 was intended to curtail the grave robbing. It sought to formally offer inexpensive bodies legally obtained as an alternative to illegally, illegally sourced corpses from graveyards. It also granted use of unclaimed bodies, which no one, if no one spoke up for them within 48, after, 48 hours after death from workhouses and hospitals. Which is not a lot of time. No, it's not. At all, especially during that time period. The lack of technology, the inability to be able to inform out-of-town or out-of-state relatives. Yeah. Forget if they were on, happened to be on vacation or right. something. Or if they just even didn't hear on time. Yeah. Phones weren't invented until the mid-1870s. So soon, unclaimed bodies from psychiatric institutions would be added to the list as well. Doctors and the well-to-do of the time argued that continued anatomical education was necessary for the advancement of science and knowledge. Which is still true, but we're doing better today. Yes, that's for sure. However, societal injustice was clear throughout these years. It wasn't often, if ever, that the elite contributed to advancements they so desperately pulled for. It was the poor, prisoners, immigrants, minorities, and people of color that ended up in the anatomical theater. Whereas capital punishment was synonymous with dissection, now poverty had taken its place. Back to that everyday worry. Yeah. It was a widely held belief at the time that by dissecting and learning from the bodies of the poor, these people were giving back to society. As workhouses across the globe closed their doors and the number of unclaimed bodies from the source dwindled, they looked instead to the unclaimed from psychiatric institutions. Perhaps it was that same mentality from earlier that allowed doctors to continue to rationalize the practice of body procurement. Which, just for a second, is such a crock of shit that you owe society anything for existing. Absolutely. Honey, you came with a blank slate. You Mm -hmm. don't owe anybody anything. Yeah, another source of cadavers was diminished with the passing of the United States' welfare legislation. Better healthcare for those who previously fell through the cracks led to even more of a shortage of unclaimed bodies, and in 1968, the country effectively disbanded the practice of grave robbing altogether with the passing of the UAGA, the Uniformal Anatomical Gift Act, which established the body as physical property, making a donation a right. Which I have chosen to do. In New York State, it's pretty easy. You can opt to be an organ donor right on your driver's license, registration, or renewal paperwork. Yep, I did the paperwork for it the day I was able to. Yeah, me too. And you, I think you can add it on if you don't have it. I think there's a box you can check, or yep. there used to be, that you can opt to it. You can also leave a note with your will or any important documentation. Tell people close to you that you're comfortable talking to about what your wishes are. Yep. There's a lot that we do today that I think... Uh, This episode brings up so many topics that would be really fun to dive into at another time. But just for example, I wanted to bring up some of the things that body donations have allowed us to study and learn over time. And on a more positive note. Yeah, it is. Good things that have come from Yeah, it is. So when you donate your body to science, there are different types of donation. There are different ways you can donate. You can donate... After death, you can donate while you're still alive. There's a lot out there if you're interested... To, for research, but we're going to look at just a short list of things that I thought were really intriguing. So arthritis, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, 
and spinal disorders were all conditions wow. that I read about them using the don't the bodies donated to science to be able to study. And they've also been used for paramedic training, mm. which I think is awesome. Automakers employ them as crash dummies to test vehicles. Physical therapists might study the musculoskeletal system, and pharmaceutical companies might test drugs on them. So those are only a handful of the ways that body donation today can still help. We didn't we didn't solve all life's mysteries when we made anatomical study legal. We still have so many things that we can learn. And overall, the consensus seems to be that body donations in general are down. Really? There was a renewed interest in science in the 1900s where the body donations was at its peak, and it seems to have slowly continued to decrease. I think it's something people don't want to think about. And I guess I can understand that. But especially also keeping in mind that it can not only benefit science, but it could save somebody's life. Absolutely. It's the one thing that I loved seeing on these pages. I think I was at donatelife.org does like a national registry where you can sign up. Um, and they were talking about all the different ways. And I know I said we wouldn't go into it, but one of the ways that you can be a live donor is to donate sections or of kidney, liver, mm-hmm. bone marrow, um, and walk out. That's the idea. I remember growing up and learning about bone marrow transplants, and at the time there wasn't an anesthesia for it, if I remember correctly, and it terrified me. And I became a, oh, what's that company? Be the Match? Yeah. Is that the where you yeah, swab the inside of your yeah. cheek? Yeah, I read all up on current research, and it's numb. They numb you now, so there's no pain for donation. That's that's amazing to me. And usually, I think if you match with someone, they pay most of the expenses for you to travel yeah. to wherever that yeah, person is. Yeah, and the is. co-pays yeah. for, for whatever your insurance is for the procedure. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. It's definitely something I'd like to do more research on. And and, and, and no shame, was a shameless plug, register to donate, register to donate life. We're given these organs, the skin, our eyes, for when we're alive, for when we can live our life, and don't take them to the grave with you. There's people who can still enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Pass them on. One of my earliest memories of a funeral, um, our maternal grandmother donated mm-hmm. her corneas, and it although she required glasses, the person was no longer considered legally blind because they could see without them. I mean, fuzzy, but with glasses that gave the person the ability to see again. And that's just one yeah. of dozens of things that can be donated. Mm-hmm. So to end it, you had some book recommendations? Yeah, I forgot to write down the names of the authors. There are quite a few that fit into this episode that I really enjoyed reading. Um, so I'll list a full um, book and author, but just for titles, right? The second, Death, Disease, and Dissection, Possessing the Dead, Dying for Victorian Medicine, Quackery, and Sawbones. You know, just the normal shit so, that you would have on your bedside table. I will probably recommend these books like 60 more times. They're, they're all really great for this topic, especially quackery. Mm. Worst ways to cure everything. Nice. Actually, that's kind of a good hint for our episode next week. Yeah. And we'll leave it a mystery again. I know we're kind of talking a little slow. This is a heavy episode. There's a lot to contemplate. 
But, um, yeah, so next week it's a semi-spooky Halloween episode. We've got at least one of the elements that fits. Just probably not in a way you would think. And at that, this is Podbeats. <laughs> <laughs> this is Podbeats. Stay weird. Turn off. Woo! Woo!